Welcome to City Reach Cumberland's weekly podcast. We hope this message blesses you. For more information about us, you can check us out on the web at cityreachcumberland.com. So today, I want to go back and I want to teach to you today and, and pick up on a message that I preached four weeks ago. Uh, not, uh, not Passover Sunday, but the week before that, I uh, preached a message. We've been working on a, a series called Rock Solid. And it's uh, taken from the, some teachings on the, from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you'll remember, it's a story of the two men that, that both built a house, one on the sand, one on the rock. And they both experienced the same storm, and only one person's house withstood it. So we're looking at different teachings that will help us build a solid foundation in life. And we're pulling those from, um, from the Sermon on the Mount. So I really want to go a little bit deeper. I think I told you I had about 18 pages of notes, that message, and um, it was way too much. So we, we shortened it, but I want to pick back up. And I really want to uh, drive home the day today about the, the, the one word being perfect or perfection. So the, um, the title of the message is Established in Righteousness, Part 2. Established in Righteousness, Part 2. And if you want to go ahead, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, mark these places. Our main texts today are going to be Hebrews chapter 10 and Zechariah chapter 3. So Hebrews chapter 10, which is toward the end of the New Testament. Zechariah, which is almost to the end of the Old Testament. And I want to just teach a little bit more about righteousness today. Not so much about what it is, but I want to help you really just develop uh, a good understanding and foundation in this because it's really, it's really a topic that has helped me in my walk with the Lord. It's helped me really do, uh, do battle with the enemy, and it's an area that he will completely wreck your life if you're not solid in it. So uh, let's just go ahead. We're gonna, I want to start, I know those are the main texts. You can mark them, but I want to look at a couple other verses first. Isaiah uh, 54, verse 14. Now, most people are familiar with 54.17. It's a verse we quote a lot, but Isaiah 54.14 says, In righteousness you shall be what? Established. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. In righteousness you shall be established. So God says, this is something I want you to have a firm foundation on. Because look what happens. He says, if you are established in righteousness, you will be far from what? Oppression. For you shall not fear. And far from terror. For it shall not come near you. Think about this. Oppression. Fear. Terror. Terror, the actually Greek word terror, uh, it's translated terror here, but it actually means destruction, to be destroyed or to be ruined. Oppression, it says that Jesus, in Acts 10.38, it says that He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Fear. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So if it didn't come from God, where did it originate from? The devil, the enemy. Destruction or terror. John 10.10, the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. Where does that come from? 
the devil, the enemy. So God says, I want you to be established in righteousness because if you are, you'll be far from oppression, which comes from the enemy. Fear comes from the enemy. Destruction comes from the enemy. And as I reread this this week, I thought about this, that if God wants me to be established in righteousness, is it possible that the enemy doesn't want me to be established in it? I mean, think about it. The enemy knows that if I'm established in this thing, oppression, fear, terror will be far from me. See, this is the one, not the one, but it's one of the main weapons. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. So this is an area you really have to be firm in. It's a very passionate about. And I want to go a little bit deeper with it today. Last, or a few weeks ago, what we looked at was Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And then we looked all the way through verse 48, although we went very fast. And Matthew 5, 20 says, Jesus says, And I say to you, unless you're righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And so when we talked about righteousness, I think we, I might have skipped a slide there, but righteousness, I'm not going to go into a big teaching on the definition, but a lot of times when we think of righteousness, we think of doing right things. And that's a minor application. There are verses in the Bible that talk about doing right things. God wants us to do right things. Doing right things does not make me righteous at all. Sinning doesn't make me a sinner. I was born into sin because of Adam. Doing right things does not make me righteous. I receive it by birth, by faith in Jesus. And so that righteousness is literally just the, it's, it's the, the character or quality or condition of being right with God. It's being innocent, guiltless, or faultless before God. That I can stand before an all-righteous, all-holy God and know that I'm right with Him. And there's nothing that makes me unright. So Jesus says, unless your, your rightness with God exceeds the rightness with God of the Pharisees, you can't get to heaven. Well, we all know the Pharisees, they kept the law impeccably. They were very good at it. We're going to look at a high priest later today when we look at Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to see where the law fails. And then as Jesus goes through and what he does in verses 21 through 47 of Matthew 5, he takes different things from the law. And and a lot of times we think when grace comes in that grace waters down the law and grace is just, oh, do what you want and, and things will be great. Grace actually raises the bar. Grace sets a higher standard. Grace raises the standard at which God expects you to live, but the difference is the law just tells you where you fail. Grace empowers you to actually do it. And Jesus, you know, he takes some examples. He says, like, the law said, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say you shouldn't look at a woman to lust after uh, with your heart, or you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Or he says, the law says uh, you shall not commit murder, but I say don't call somebody a stupid idiot. Uh, or it's the same thing. So he goes through all these different things, and he actually sets the standard for what he's bringing in, which is the age of grace. And then he gets all the way to verse 48. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. He gets to the end of verse 48 at that. He says, therefore, so if you can do all that, then you'll be perfect, 
just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a tall order, right? That's a big order. He says, if you can do that, then you'll be perfect the same way your Father in heaven's perfect. And if you can be perfect, then you can get to heaven. <laughs> of course, the question is, well, who in the world can make it to heaven then? On your own, you can't. And that's what the law was intended to do. The law was intended to point out that you can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good to ever earn your way there. If you ask most people today on the street, what's it take to get to heaven? Well, you got to be, you just got to be a little bit better than you are bad. You got to have enough good to outweigh your bad. Or you need to be a really good person. Or you need to do some good things. Jesus' standard is not good. His standard is perfection. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot stand before God righteous unless he makes you perfectly righteous. Imagine that. See, God's standard is not merely good. It's got to be perfect. And this is, this is where we get hung up a lot. Because we're like, well, nobody's perfect, right? You know, a lot of times, we have, a, we have a hard time saying that. If I said, it's hard to say, I'm perfect. Right? If I said that, you'd say, boy, you're arrogant. Boy, you, you think that your stuff don't stink. Who do you think you are? But I really want to drive home today, and I want you to see today that this is how God sees you. He sees you when you've put your faith in Him as perfect. That's what you are in Christ. See, what happens a lot of times is we let our religiosity get in the way. I'm not even sure if that's a word. R-E-L. I-G-I-O-S-T-Y. Religiosity. It sounds good. It sounds religious. See, what happens, we come to church on Sunday and we sing, I am who he says I am. And then by Tuesday, we're saying, we're out confessing, I am who he says I'm not. Because when we get here and we get all charged up and we hear God's word and we know what God's word says we are and we get confident in it, and then by Tuesday or Wednesday, the devil's convinced us otherwise and we're saying something completely different. We go out and we even say, Christians aren't perfect, they're just. What's it say? You guys seen the bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. You ever seen that? Have you heard somebody say it? You never heard that. Well, do some more driving. You'll see it somewhere. Or people say, there ain't nobody perfect but one man, and you aren't it. So we're real quick to tell other people they're not. I ain't perfect. Nobody's perfect. Christians aren't Perfect, they're just forgiven. And we go around confessing things that actually disagree with what God's Word says. Maybe you've heard this one. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Okay, you know that one. Well, you, if you've accepted Jesus, you were a sinner, but now you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You were an addict, you were an adulterer, you were a thief, you were a convict, 
But now you're washed. Now you're justified. Now you're cleansed. Now you're the righteousness of God. But we go around confessing things that we're not because it sounds religious or it sounds right. And I want you, and, and when we start confessing those things, that's where the enemy, he starts knocking away at us. So I want to change your lens today. See, really you look at, say this, it depends on the lens. See, it depends on the lens. It depends on whether you're looking through the lens of grace or the lens of legalism. It depends on whether you're looking at the lens uh, through physical eyes or through spiritual eyes. It just depends on the lens that you're looking through. I want you to learn how to look through the lens of grace. I want you to learn to look through the lens of the Holy Spirit, what God sees when he looks at you. So we're going to start here, Hebrews chapter 10, and then we're going to go to Zechariah 3, then we're going to finish up with Hebrews 10. It says, The law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach what? Perfect. It says the law is a shadow of good things to come. It's not the very thing itself. So a shadow, if I'm looking here at this table and there's a shadow, I can tell a little bit about the table by the shadow. But can I put my Bible on the shadow? doesn't do any good. Can I set this water on the shadow? No. Because a shadow is just a representation. It's the interception of light and, and, and the actual thing. And, and if you look in Colossians, it says the things in the law, the things that you did under the law were a shadow, but Jesus is the very substance. Jesus is the actual thing. So when it says the law is a shadow, shadows are great. If I see my wife's shadow, it might let me know I don't really want to make out with her shadow, right? I want the real thing. Her shadow's okay, but she's better, right? So it says the law's, law's not bad. It just gives us an idea of what's coming. So it says the law, it says, could never, with those sacrifices offered year after year after year, ever make anything perfect. So the first thing we know is that the law could never make you perfect. Keeping the law will not make you perfect. You cannot get to heaven by trying to keep the law, trying to do what's right, not do what's wrong. It will never get you to the level that you need to be at to access heaven. It says, for then, would, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. Let me get rid of these glasses. He said that these sacrifices are offered year after year after year. And every time that they were offered, if they could make you perfect, then you would no longer have a consciousness of sin. So what would happen... Every time the sacrifice was made, you'd remember what you did. Sacrifice, oh yeah, that's how bad I am. Another sacrifice, oh yeah, I'm awful. I'm terrible. I'm bad. I keep remembering the sin. And it says, if they could make you perfect, it would go beyond just covering your sin because that's all the Old Testament sacrifices did, that it could actually cleanse your conscience. It could actually get you to the point where you're not concentrating and conscious of sin. Don't mistake consciousness of sin for consequences of sin. 
Because although God wants you not to be conscious of your sin, He wants you to be conscious of Jesus, it doesn't mean that there's not consequences for your sin. Although He's paid the ultimate penalty, death, God does not want you to sin. He's not excusing sin because it's already paid for. There will still be consequences you may have to, to pay. You reap what you sow. So don't confuse no more consciousness with no more consequences. It said, but in those sacrifices, there are a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So right here, this is giving us a, a hint when it talks about year after year and the blood of bulls and goats. In the Jewish, at the Jewish time, uh, and still today, I guess, they had their, their, big, their big day of the year, like, like would be our Christmas or our Easter, was what they called Yom Kippur or what we would call Day of Atonement. Anybody familiar with the Day of Atonement? Okay, a couple people. So on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the priest would get to, the high priest, and only the high priest, would enter the Holy of Holies. So the holy place, they minister daily, but one day a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. So in the Holy of Holies is the, the Ark of the Covenant. You have cherubim on either side, and in between the cherubim is where the presence of God dwelled. And so here is the very presence of God. So only one day a year could he go behind the veil and enter in. And on that day, it, it, was, it, was, it led up to that day that there would be all-night prayer, it would be confession, prayer, other priests would be praying. And then in, in the morning, he would begin this process of, of cleansing his body. So you cannot go in the presence of God with any dirt, any filth, Anything. So they'd go through and he'd have to wash every crack, every crevice, no, no dirt behind the ears, no, no, nothing under the armpits, no little dots under there. They had to get it all out. And then once he's completely cleansed, his body's cleansed, has the toe, then he gets dressed in white linen. And he puts this white linen on. He's got linen trousers and he's got a linen shirt or tunic. And then a linen sash, or what we would call a belt. And then a linen turban for his head. And he enters in the presence of God into the Holy of Holies one day of year, completely clean, completely cleansed, wearing clean clothes. And if you read Leviticus 16, so Leviticus 16, if you read the whole chapter, talks about all the requirements of the Day of Atonement. If he enters the wrong day, the wrong time, the wrong way, unclean. If he misses any one little thing, guess what happens to him? Drops dead. Now you talk about job pressure. That's pressure, right? You think about that. He can't mess up at all. If he does, he dies instantly in the presence of God. This is not in the Bible, but if you read Jewish writings about it, they said that they even would tie a rope around his ankle and bells around the bottom of his, his, uh, his linen. And as long as they were jingling, they knew that he was still alive. Because if he fell over, who wants to be the next guy to go in and get him? Not me. Because that guy's going to die too. So they would pull him out. One day a year. One day a year. And he says, so you would think in all of Israel, millions of people at the time, 
There's one guy, if he's the holy guy, he's the holiest of everybody, he's the high priest. And you would think if anybody could get their head right with their standing before God, it would be that guy. But Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, and we're not talking about Joshua that led Israel out of the prom, or into, into the promised land. We're talking about Joshua the high priest. He has a vision of Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest, along with Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, were the two guys in charge of rebuilding the temple at the time. And God gives, gives Zechariah a vision of this high priest Joshua standing before the presence of the Lord. And I believe it was on the Day of Atonement because it's the only time that the high priest would be standing before the presence of the Lord. And I think he lets us into his head a little bit. I think he lets us get a glimpse of what's going through Joshua's mind at the time. And it's these three things I want to show you in this passage. And just give you three points today about righteousness and what God does for us. So I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll read through it. So first, rebukes the adversary. These all start with R. So righteousness, they're all going to start with R. Rebukes the adversary. Removes our sin. And replaces our clothes. And if you remember a few weeks ago, when I had Pastor Jay up here, and we were talking about righteousness being imputed or put it on our account that I gave my sin to him. He gave his righteousness to me. That's kind of where we'll end up again today. So rebukes the adversary, removes our sin, and replaces our clothes. So here's a glimpse. Now remember, think about this. This high priest has gone through the process. He's in the presence of God. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, a lot of times in the Old Testament, and you see the word angel is capitalized. When we think of angels, we think of what? People that like wings and fluttering around. So this is capitalized because a lot of times in the Old Testament, when you see the term angel of the Lord, it's a pre-incarnate appearance, appearance of Jesus. So not every translation capitalizes it, but uh, the one I used today did. It says, uh, standing before the angel of the Lord, and who else was there? Satan. Satan. Now the word Satan is actually a Hebrew word. It's spelled the same, S-A-T-A-N, if we would transliterate it. And it just means adversary or opponent or one who stands against or opposes. Sound familiar? Yeah. So the word Satan, the name Satan, means to oppose or to stand against or to be an opponent or adversary. It says, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. Now this this eye, here's Zechariah having a vision, and he gets so excited about what's going on, he actually jumps into the dream. He says, Hey, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Why don't you put a clean turban on him too? 
So he, he interjects and he says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. All right, so here he is. Joshua the high priest, standing before the presence of the Lord. Satan standing to his right hand to do what? Oppose him. And he is obviously casting insults, condemnation, accusations against him. Because then the Lord steps in and says, hey, I rebuke you. I'm going to take your sin from you. and I'm going to give you new clothes. It's really a picture. So when we look at this, this didn't happen at that time, but it's a picture of what Jesus was going to do when he would come to the earth. So here's what he says. First one, rebukes the adversary. Next slide. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is not this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and the angel was standing before him. So what kind of garments did the, the high priest have to wear before he entered the presence of the Lord? I just told you. Clean, white, linen, no dirt, right? So the reason I think this is a spiritual picture is because if he would have actually entered the presence of the Lord with filthy garments, what would have happened? Gone. But you remember also Hebrews said that, that, that those sacrifices never purified what? The conscience. And I think he's giving us a picture of what's going on in either this mental battle or a spiritual battle. It says, so here's the enemy. He's hurling insults. He says, look, he's got on filthy garments. Now I looked up this word filthy, and it's actually only used twice in the Old Testament in this passage. It's the, the lowest form, the most vile form of filth that you can express in the Hebrew language. You know what it means? Poop. <laughs> he's literally saying he's got on poopy clothes. They're not just dirty with little... He just didn't fall down, get a little dirt on his knees and elbows. He actually has excrement all over him. Now, I can identify with this. You know how? You guys want to hear a good story? I was about 20 years old. I was taking some friends of mine camping. And I went to scout the place out ahead of time. <clears throat> now, as most of you know, I sell cars, but I know nothing about them. My wife is the mechanic in the family. So at the time, this was back in the day, I borrowed a Ford Bronco back when they used to make them the first time. And they had a thing called locking hubs. Does anybody know what locking hubs are? I know Andrew Roman does. Right? I know Darrell probably does. So you, you couldn't just push the button that said four-wheel drive. You had to actually get out and go to each wheel and lock the hub in to get four-wheel drive. Well, guess who didn't know that? So I took this Bronco down out, out Green Ridge, back, you know, back these back roads, down this road, and guess what? I got stuck. Well, no problem. I'll just put it in four-wheel drive. Nobody told me to lock the hubs. So an hour goes by, guess what? I gots to go. I gots to go really bad. So I'll skip that part. But then after I went, and I won't tell you how that all worked out, I thought, hmm, here's what I'll do. I'll get some bark, and I'll put bark underneath the wheels and create some traction and get this truck out of here. 
Well, let me tell you, let me just give you a little advice. If you're ever going to go in the woods, make sure you go far away from your truck. Don't go next to your truck. So I let out, when I realized what happened, I just went, no! Not only am I stuck, I'm wearing filthy garments. So now I got to hitch, now, now I got to hitch, now I got to try to hitchhike a ride to make a phone call. So, you know, after a while, you, you don't smell, after you've been around to smell, for you don't smell it, you think, well, maybe it's not that bad. Flagged down this farmer in an old F-150. I said, hey, my truck's stuck. Can you give me a ride? He goes, oh, yeah. He rolls down the way. He goes, in the back. <laughs> he said, get in the back. It didn't go away. You know, and sometimes you can get stuck in your sin so long you think it doesn't stink. You know, you get so used to the life you're living, you realize that you're actually wearing filthy clothes. Other people can smell it. You can't. You've gone nose blind. You need a little Febreze, right? You get nose blind to your own stuff. The enemy's saying, look at his filthy clothes. What's Jesus say? He says, is not Joshua a brand that I plucked out of the fire? Now what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Think of it like this. Anybody ever use a stick in the fire to kind of like jimmy the stuff around? Like a poker stick? Some translations use the word log. Either way, when a stick is in the fire, it gets charred, right? It gets burnt. It gets black on the outside. It gets a smell to it. Jesus says, hey, he might have a little dirt on him, but I plucked him out. I pulled him out of that fire. I've got a plan for him. I have a purpose for him. He might look dirty. He might smell. He might be sullied. He might be charcoal. He might stink. He might look like he's got no purpose, but I pulled him out. That word pluck means to deliver. So just because you may have been in the fire before, that fire doesn't define what God has planned for you. He's plucked you out. See, if you, think, if you look in the New Testament, 1 uh, Peter 5, next slide, 8 and 9. We read verse 8 a lot. It says, beware, be sober, for your adversary, who? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. One area he's going to try to eat your lunch in is righteousness. He's going to point out maybe not what you did 20 years ago, what you did yesterday, what you did last week, what you did on the way to work today. Because a lot of people are secure that I was made righteous the day I got saved. But man, today I don't feel righteous, so I probably am not. It says, resist him. 
Resist him. James tells us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will do what? Flee. It says resist him, firm, established, steadfast. Actually, the word means stubborn. Kristen says, don't go there. I always said my wife was stubborn. My mom always says, she's not stubborn, she's steadfast. Very, very spiritual. But you know, we get stubborn about a lot of stuff. We get stubborn about politics. We get stubborn about football teams. We get stubborn about this belief or that denomination. It says, get stubborn toward the enemy. Stand firm in your faith. Get established in righteousness. And when he begins to whisper in your ear, you got filthy garments, you got to say, I was washed in the blood. I got a purpose in life. I've been cleansed. I've been set free. I've been made clean. I'm as white as white gets. Whiter than snow. What's it say in Revelation chapter 12? It says, The accuser of the brethren was cast down, verse 10. Verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of what? Their testimony. So many people relegate their testimony to the day they got saved. And that is a testimony. But you've got to have a testimony today. You've got to have a testimony like, what's God doing in your life today? That I'm the righteousness of God today. That I was set free and I am free for good. I'm righteous forever. Hit the road, Jack. <laughs> All right. So, the difference is back then, Jesus had to rebuke Satan. Now, a lot of people say, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, you shouldn't go rebuking the enemy. Leave that up to God. Let me tell you this. Jesus, and you heard Katie say it this morning, Jesus gave us His authority. He said, all authority on earth and on heaven has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He said, when He said, go therefore, He just transferred His authority to you. So I can use the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and He backs it up. So you can take that authority and tell Him to hit the road. Alright. Next. Removes our sin. He says, take away the filthy garments from Him. Take away. See, when God paid for your sin. When Jesus paid for your sin. This is, what, this is the difference between that old covenant, why it could never get rid of sin consciousness. Because on that day of atonement, the Hebrew word atonement is, is the word kafar. Kafar means to cover. Cover. The day of atonement literally translates the day of covering. So when the blood was applied to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, it covered up sin. But guess what was still there? Sin. It never went away. It never went away. It just covered it up. The blood was applied. So when Jesus made payment for your sin, He did not atone for your sins. I know some translations say atone. But He didn't atone for your sins in the way atonement was made under the Old Testament. Because under the Old Testament, it just covered it up. It pointed to the time when Jesus would come 
And John the Baptist would see Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Covers the sin of the world? Takes away the sin of the world. So if you're carrying it, you must have took it back from him. Because he took it away. He says, I see your filthy rags. I see your filthy garments. I see it. I smell it. I pulled you out of the fire. And here's what I'm going to do. Taking it off. See, it might look like linen on the outside, but inside it's still filthy. You might clean up on the outside. You might bathe in the holy water. You might put the linen on, but inside you're still as dirty as can be. Because the standard is what? Perfection. James says, James 2.10, if you offend in one, you keep the whole law, but offend in one point, you're guilty of all. He says, I'm taking it away. I'm taking that filthy rag, filthy garment, and I'm getting rid of it. How far does he take it? Did you read my notes? Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so I have removed your iniquity from you. Let's just stay here for a minute before we go to the next slide. Take away the filthy garments from him, and to him, him being uh, Joshua, he says, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. You know that word see? Now, obviously, he's not seeing this in the physical realm. It means to get a perception of, to gain understanding of, to actually have a vision of. And I think God puts this story in the Old Testament to give us a vision of what's taking place. Because if I can see it here, if I can get it here, I can also I can start to grasp onto it. And he says, I want you to see that I've taken away that, that filthy garment. Next slide, it says, I've removed your iniquities as far as the east is from the west. Micah says that I put them into the sea of forgetfulness. Jeremiah says it, and then it's quoted in Hebrews twice. In chapter 8 and verse 10, he says, and I will remember your iniquities no more. See, it's not that God doesn't see your sin, He chooses not to remember it. Because there was a day when Jesus died on the cross that He remembered every single one of them. He remembered every sin that you committed, will commit, and are still going to commit next year, next week, next whatever. And He took every one of them, put them on Jesus, and He remembered them then, and He chooses to forget them now. And see, if God chooses to forget them, that's why He wants to get to us to get to a point of no more consciousness of sin. I don't want you dwelling on sin. I want you dwelling on Jesus. And when you dwell on Jesus, you'll stop sinning. See, so often we think, well, I've got to quit sinning so I can come before God. No, come before God and He'll fill you with His Holy Spirit and you'll start walking in righteousness. So you'll start exhibiting the thing that's now true on the inside. Finally, close up. <clears throat> Next slide. He replaces our clothes. So he doesn't take that, that filthy garment. He doesn't put it in the, the washing machine on the super top spin cycle. 
for really dirty clothes and give it back to you. No, he gives you a brand new set of clothes. He takes away the old rags, the old garments, and he gives you something brand new. So I probably should have brought another sport coat today, but I didn't. Just to pretend, pretend like this is a new one. And he says, see, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with what kind of robes? Rich robes. I looked that up. I thought that was an odd word, but you know what rich robes are? They're actually robes. It's clothing that's worn for special occasions. Where's a place that we wear clothes for special occasions? <laughs> Pastor Fred's, church, weddings. Yeah, a wedding. I, a few weeks ago, we had a wedding here, Tanya and Jeremy. And I saw a lot of people wear a tie that I didn't know owned a tie. You saw me wear a tie for the first time in this church in probably three years. But yeah, there, there's times and special occasions where we pull out the good clothes. We're going to a formal event. We're putting on a tuxedo. When I got married, it was the first time I ever had a tuxedo. And for whatever reason, I, I think at the time, I, I was in high school in the 80s, went to college in the 90s, and Ralph Lauren was like what I thought was like, that was it. And so I wanted this Ralph Lauren tuxedo for my wedding. And so I, I called, a, uh, I called a, a local clothing shop at the time, and I said, hey, can you give me one of these? I want double-breasted, which at the time, you know, double-breasted suit, tuxedo, shiny lapels. I mean, I had it all picked out. I said, can you get this for me? They said, absolutely. I said, you can get, I want this brand. I don't want any other. Nope, we got it. So I went, picked it up. Sure enough, looked in the lapel. Guess what it said? Ralph Wren. Worked my wedding, put it in a closet. Ten years later, I thought, you know, I'm going to pull this tux out and look at it. Well, by that time, the stitching around the name had kind of pulled, pulled away. I was like, well, that's odd. And so I pulled the sticker that said Ralph Lauren. I pulled it down, and it said, like, Jim Bob's tuxedos. <laughs> The store had gone out of business by then, obviously why, so I couldn't go back and, and say anything, but here's what I want to tell you. When Jesus gives you a new suit, it's not a fake one. It's the real deal, right? It's a real deal. You're not going to pull the label off and it's going to say, Bobo Righteousness. Did I say Bobos anymore? So when I was a kid, Bobos was like the, the shoes that nobody wanted to wear. Like my dad would say, hey, we're going to get some tennis. I don't want no Bobos, Dad. I don't know what they call them now, Bobos. I'm bringing Bobos back, actually. Bringing Bobos back. You're not going to get a Bobo suit. Now here's the suit you're going to get. Look what Isaiah says, Isaiah 61.10. I put the message translation up here because I like it. It says, I will sing for joy in God, explode in praise from deep in my soul. He dressed me up in a suit of salvation. He outfitted me in a robe of righteousness. Listen to this description. As a bridegroom who puts on a tuxedo, and as a bride a jeweled tiara. 
That's the kind of clothes you get. That's what Jesus wants to dress you in. And if you've accepted Him, that's what you are dressed in. All right, I told you we're going to close. we gotta, we got to hurry up here. We're going to close. Let's go to Hebrews chapter. I want to go back here because here's where I want to, I want to finish this up on perfected. Because I, I know it sounds weird and it sounds sacrilegious and it sounds arrogant to say that I have been perfected. I am perfect before God. But if you're saved, you are. You need to own it. And you need to own it so much so that when the enemy tells you anything otherwise, you know what to say. And you know who you are, and you know what you are. Verse 11 says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered, how many? One sacrifice for sins for how long? Forever. One sacrifice forever. So multiple sins, or I'm sorry, multiple sacrifices, multiple remembrances. The more, every time there was a sacrifice, there was a remembrance made. Jesus made one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. Sat down. Now you'll notice, look what the priest in verse 11 is doing. Every priest stands. Standing and ministering has the aspect that their work was never done. Could you imagine every day sacrificing animals for the sins of millions of people? That's a full-time job. Now there was the annual Day of Atonement, but there was also daily sacrifices. So their work was never done. Jesus, when He died on the cross, made one sacrifice, one offering for every sin that was ever, will ever be committed for all time and he sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Here's the verse. For by one offering he has, say it, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now we didn't look at it, but back in verse 10, it says by one offering he sanctified forever. So there's an aspect of your salvation where you've already been sanctified once and for all time. There's another aspect of your salvation that you're continually being sanctified. You're becoming more holy. You're becoming more like Jesus. I'm talking about the part of you that was made new on the day you got saved. That Jesus made you a new creation, perfected you forever. Perfected forever. The day you got saved, the day you made Jesus the Lord of your life, You were made so perfect on that day, next week, next year, ten years from now, a million years from now, you'll still be that perfect. That part of you doesn't change. Now that part of you on the inside, we want to come out. We want that to start changing what's on the outside. But if you've been saved, you've been perfected forever. Isaiah 54.14 says, No weapon formed against me will what? Prosper. Every tongue that rises up against me, I'll do what? Condemn. For this is the heritage of of the saints, for their righteousness is from me. When you realize you've got God's righteousness and the enemy comes against you, 
condemn that thing. Tell him where to go. Tell him who you are. Tell him what you've been made. Tell him what you've been pulled out of. Tell him what you've been cleansed from. Tell him what you look like now. You'll be far from oppression, far from fear, far from destruction. Let's pray. Father, I just ask now that you take this word. And Lord, I just stand against the enemy now from stealing this seed. Because it's important, and he knows it's important. I stand against his thieving, his deceiving, his his trying to steal what you want to plant so deep into the hearts of people today. Father, protect this seed. Water this seed, Holy Spirit. Let us become established in righteousness. Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, Lord, I just ask that they would make today the day to accept you, to put their faith and trust in you, be cleansed from all sin, get a new set of clothes. Do I have any worship today or anybody? Just take a few minutes. I just want to give a little time today. If you need prayer, I just want to pray for people today. Just take a few minutes. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, just come, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Jay, my wife, whoever. We want to introduce you to Jesus. If you're struggling with issues in your life, condemnation, whatever, let's pray about it. Hey, we all need prayer. We all need prayer. I need prayer. You need prayer. We're here to pray for you guys. Take a few minutes before we go.